Thank you very much for, for the invitation to talk today. And uh, it's slightly daunting to speak right after Paul Collier. But um, I'm not even trying to, uh, to compete. Trisha asked me to talk about the complex relationship between corruption and peace building. And the, the remarks I'm going to make in the next half hour very much draw from two different research projects. And uh, one explicitly on corruption and peace building, which I'm um, conducting with Christine Cheng, who's here as well. So I definitely have to come clear. And um, which will be published as a book later this year. So uh, for all the details, you have to go, go and buy a copy. Um, but it also draws on some work with uh, a local think tank in Kosovo uh, on the organization of corruption in Kosovo and uh, how, it, uh, how it functions and how it functions in relation in particular to informal power structures that are interwoven with, um, with the government. Now, corruption has increasingly pervaded <coughs> discourses of state and peace building in recent years and has become one of the main lenses through which we start to look, thank you much, uh, st uh, looking at these kind of enterprises. It features very prominently in donor documents, if not always in donor practices. It has seeped into local political discourses uh, with politicians accusing each other of corruption, not just in their day-to-day -day political interactions, but in particular during election time. It's generally seen as a threat to better governance, to development, and to stability, and has even been identified rather hyperbolically by an American political scientist as a powerful, all-consuming evil in a book on corruption and world order, a description I would normally reserve for crimes against humanity such as genocide, slavery, ethnic cleansing, rather than a policeman, politician, or procurement officer taking a bribe. Be as it may, I think the relationship between corruption and peace building is really too complex and uh, it's very complex. It's too complex for such a simple universalistic definition. And addressing corruption, in particular in peace building contexts, involves often difficult political and moral choices for five reasons. Firstly, while there's clear evidence that corruption in the longer run stymies economic development, undermines the legitimacy of state institutions, and can even cause conflict. In the short run, it might help to stabilize the relationships between warring elites, to cement power-sharing deals that are essential to contain violence, arguably all quite desirable objectives in post-conflict situations. Secondly, corruption is a social concept. Its content differs across different cultural and social contexts. Peace-building actors, be they diplomats, aid workers, or peacekeepers, often have understandings of corruption that overlap, but are by no means congruent with local conceptions. And certainly the organization of corruption and the networks of political and economic structures that underlie them differ between different post-conflict countries. In countries with major natural resources, as Pocolia you just highlighted, such as diamonds or oil, it's likely to be structured around the exploitation and the trade in these resources. And this can be tremendously damaging to peace-building efforts. In countries like Kosovo, with no major resources other than an enormously polluted and polluting lignite mine, public procurement and publicly owned enterprises are major sites of corruption and patronage. <coughs> Fourthly, corruption can be a very rational response by a local population, by individuals and groups to the 
insecurities of a wartime and a post-war environment. And finally, while corruption affects peace building, different peace building practices fuel and sustain corrupt structures and practices, an issue to which I want to come back in a moment. Now, anti-corruption efforts that don't realize and recognize these complexities will inevitably fall short. Now, with this in mind, what I want to advance are briefly three main arguments. The first is that the reason for the increased focus on corruption in peacebuilding operations is the consequence of the form that peacebuilding has taken in recent years, in particular its focus on governance and state building. Second, the focus on state building has contributed to fueling and entrenching corrupt structures and practices in post-war countries. Now, this is arguably a tad ironic, given that it was the emphasis on state building in the first place that led to the focus on corruption in these places. And finally, the anti-corruption measures pursued in the context of peace building have predominantly focused on formal anti-corruption institutions and the formal institutions of governance, and not on the institutional structure, the informal pra- structures and practices of host countries, and also not on the international actors that are involved there. So overall, I want to argue that in the context of peace building, the desirability of a rigorous and uncompromising anti-corruption policy is by no means obvious, as it can jeopardize wider and possibly more important peace building goals. Corruption is an important challenge to peace and development, but it's not the only one. And if you want to effectively address it, I think there are some quite easy wins, but they are politically difficult in many developed countries rather than developing countries. So why the growing interest in corruption uh, in, corruption in peace building contexts? Now, ever since scholars such as Joseph Nye or James Scott wrote about corruption in developing countries in the late 1960s, there's been a general recognition that the prevalence of corruption is related to weak political and administrative institutions that could provide public services and hold public officials accountable that is rooted in the absence of strong shared conceptions of public office, and that corruption thrives in environments where the distinctions between the public and the private sphere are blurred. For example, because of the existence of strong non-state-based forms of authority based on tribal or kinship relations. It is therefore not surprising that corruption has increasingly been recognized as pervasive in post-conflict environments and identified as a major challenge to peacebuilding. Post-conflict countries are often characterized by weak political and administrative institutions, by sectarian divisions along ethnic, tribal, or religious lines that make any consensus or norms of public office difficult to achieve and instead lock these societies into zero-sum political competitions. Informal actors, often rooted in wartime economic and political transformations, often challenge weak formal political structures. In addition, the sudden inflow of large amounts of donor aid and the desire of external actors to disperse this aid quickly and relatively unbureaucratically and the weakness of accountability mechanisms for this disbursement of this aid create ample incentives and opportunities for corruption. Corruption also undermines key peace-building practices and objectives. It weakens the effectiveness of humanitarian and development assistance as money is siphoned off and fails to reach the intended beneficiaries. It undermines the legitimacy of state institutions as it distorts and weakens the delivery of basic public services, 
and can lead to discrimination against parts of society, undermining both the performance legitimacy and the procedural legitimacy of the state. And finally, through patronage, it entrenches informal wartime economic and political structures, often further empowering those who are responsible for atrocities and human rights violations during war. Now, the fact that it has become such a major preoccupation for peace-building actors and analysts in recent years is a consequence of the wider scope of peace-building activities and their focus on governance. In particular, their focus on socioeconomic development and the reforms and strengthening of political and administrative structures, both of which are strongly affected, of course, by corruption. This broad scope of peace-building interventions reflects two intellectual developments over the last decade. First, it's rooted in a growing recognition of the importance of war economies for the perpetuation of conflict and the persistence of the power structures arising from these war economies well into peacetime, where they're entrenched and consolidated through corruption. And second, even though peace-building, defined by the former Secretary-General of the UN, Butras Butras Ghali, as actions to identify and support structures which will tend to strengthen and solidify peace in order to avoid a relapse into conflict, encompasses quite a wide range of, of practices from reconciliation at the elite and grassroots level to transitional justice, security sector reform, um, disarmament, demobilization, reintegration practices, the promotion of human security and human development objectives such as health and education. Many donor governments and international organizations have increasingly focused on state building as an essential aspect of peace building, at times using the two terms interchangeably because the weakness or even the collapse of state institutions have come to be seen as major sources of conflict and insecurity. Functioning institutions that can help to manage conflicts over power, resources and identity in divided societies, and that are reasonably effective in delivering key public services such as security and justice, are undoubtedly central to post-war stability. As UN Secretary General Kofi Annan suggested in 2001, the natural conflicts of society can, resolved, can be resolved through the exercise of state sovereignty and generally participatory governments. However, as I want to argue in the following, the kind of practices that are supposed to achieve this can actually also fuel and entrench corruption. Now let me say a few words about what I mean by state building, which has become so central to peace building. State building has two dimensions really which following Kalevi Holsti, we could call vertical and horizontal state building. By vertical state building, I mean the establishment of the classic Weberian state, the creation of a social contract between state and society reflected in the capacity of the state not only to exercise the monopoly of violence, but also to provide services in return to its population. And on the other hand, the establishment of accountability, the state being accountable to its society in particular through democratic institutions. Horizontal state building, on the other hand, focuses on the integration of different groups within society into the state, in a way it delineates the boundaries of societies that, that, is, uh, that is governed by the state. These efforts have involved power-sharing institutions to encourage the participation of a wide range of different groups and to call potential spoilers into these institutions, as in the transitional governments in Liberia, the DRC, Burundi, or the Cote d'Ivoire, to name just a few examples. Such efforts have promoted the integration of rebel forces into the armed forces or into state-run militias, 
the, um, the Sunni militias in Iraq come to mind. The aim of these is to extend the reach of the state into social groups and territories it previously did not control. Now, while ugly both of these dimensions of state building are desirable to increase security and stability, both can fuel corruption for five reasons in particular. First, the kind of power-sharing deals that have become a regular feature of peace agreements and peace-building efforts often involve the tested acceptance of corruption. Offering warring parties power, patronage, and access to state resources can facilitate a literal buy-in into a peace settlement. In the DRC, the main former rebel leaders were all made vice presidents in the government who were given the right to appoint associates to political posts into managerial positions in state-run companies, providing them with a major source of patronage and leading to the embezzlement of millions of dollars from state-run companies. In Mozambique, the international community established a trust fund, which was used, among other things, to buy, out, to buy the Renamo rebels' assent to the peace agreement, as well as ensuring that they could share in the spoils of government. In Liberia, the comprehensive peace agreement divvied up cabinet positions between the three warring factions, during the two years of the transitional government that it was in power. And many government officials took full advantage of their positions for financial and political gain, including at the end of their tenure, voting collectively that they could all keep their US-financed government cars. <laughs> Secondly, state-building efforts have generally strengthened executive institutions vis-a-vis -vis institutions that are expected <laughs> to hold them accountable, so the legislatures, the judiciary, or ombudsmen but also vis-a-vis -vis civil society. The checks and balances necessary to contain corruption and abuses of power are therefore very often weak. In Kosovo, for example, this meant that the government could just break the law without any consequences when it came to the appointment of uh, board members to the publicly owned companies, the major source of patronage, and uh, who then appointed new management teams to these companies. Um, most of them being party loyalists, who very often didn't even fulfill the most basic legal criteria for um, being members of boards of these companies. With very little response from the international community. Third, the focus on democratization, especially the continued tendency to hold relatively early elections, can fuel post-war corruption. What uh, Paul Collier referred to as selection effects. Studies show that while consolidated democratic regimes are associated with lower corruption, it often flourishes in democratizing countries because of the clientelistic politics, the increased ability of rent seekers to access public officials, and because of weak checks and balances, as well as the decentralization of corruption, which are all associated with democratization processes. On the other hand, um, in the book we have a chapter on Liberia by Will Reno, and he highlights how actually the ability of um, wartime leaders to engage in business and corrupt practices distracted them from time to see office in government and meant it actually created a space for other political entrepreneurs who were probably less corrupt to enter, um, to enter the political competition and to consolidate and consolidate their position. So the evidence might not be as clear, for at least in some of the cases, as, as it suggests. Fourth, peace and state-building actors generally put a premium on stability and the absence or at least the containment of violence. Not least for fear that renewed violence will threaten the legitimacy of their peace-building efforts and the credibility of the organizations involved. 
This preference for stability means that peace-building actors have often been reluctant to challenge spoilers, instead seeking ways to co-opt them into peace-building processes. Thus, in Kosovo, the EU rule of law mission and the International Civilian Office have been unwilling to confront the third parallel structures that have been established in the north of the country, even though they reject not just the authority of the international community, but also the authority of the, the government that the international community is claiming to support, and which are steeped in organized crime, carousel fraud, smuggling, and corruption. Simil uh, actually, the only way to that has, what has effectively undermined these structures were efforts by Serb prosecutors to weed out corruption in some of the ministries in Belgrade that effectively funded that. And that's suddenly, in particular, under the in the financial crisis, reduced their funding that was available for these kind of practices coming from Belgrade quite substantially. Um, but they have also been unwilling to challenge notoriously corrupt members of the Kosovo Albanian political elite, such as the Minister of Transport, responsible for a huge program um, of building motorways, and uh, it took a, a newspaper to expose him uh, and the, the, the blatantly corrupt practices involving companies that were set up two days before the deadline and which suddenly got million, million euro contracts, um, which were run by wartime associates of, of this former Utica commander, and um, so, so which have now been finally after this is being investigated. The fifth reason why. Um, state building and peace building can contribute to corruption is the way in which aid money has been spent. Now, most obviously, the sudden inflow of large amounts of aid creates potential sources of rents and increases incentives for corruption. But also the way in which assistance has been spent can fuel corruption, especially, as was said earlier, if it is given directly to the government and budgetary support with few opportunities for oversight. However, even money channeled past the government through projects straight to local communities can be very prone to corruption, a problem associated in particular with the billions of dollars spent in Iraq, but also especially Afghanistan, by the US under the uh, so-called Commander Emergency Response Program, or SERPs, uh, a quick impact development project to win the hearts and minds of the local population with rather limited effect, not least because much of this money has been, um, has been embezzled away through, uh, through corruption. It has effectively sustained um, has very often strengthened wartime leaders and little have actually reached the um, reached local communities. But of course, this is money that far outstrips, it is almost 50% more than the USAID budget for Afghanistan, which of course is governed by very, very different um, spending rules. Now, the links between peace building practices and corruption highlighted here underline the complexity of the relationship between the two and the different political choices that peace-building and addressing corruption in these countries involves. For even though seeking a political settlement or promoting democratization might fuel corruption, there are still important wider peace-building goals that one might want to pursue. So understanding these relationships is important when embarking on anti-corruption efforts. So the final point I want to, to make is to briefly address anti-corruption efforts in peace-building environments. But there's no doubt that it is important to address corruption in these contexts, as failing to do so can lead to renewed fragility in the longer term and can undermine the peace-building effort. However, as I've previously suggested, the desirability of vigorously pursuing corrupt actors and practices needs to be judged in the context of wider peace-building objectives and an assessment of the impact of such efforts on basic objectives such as physical security. 
as Verena has argued, sometimes local strongmen must be ruled before we can implement the rule of law. Now, several characteristics of international efforts to address corruption in post-conflict countries can help to shed light on why these efforts have not been particularly successful so far. One of the first characteristics is the internationalization of key budgetary functions. For example, through a co-signature mechanism such as the GMAP mechanism in Liberia, or so-called double-death setups in Kosovo in Timor, where you would have international and local officials working together in the same function. Such setups have been successful in some, in some respect. GMAP, for example, helped to more than triple um, Liberian tax, tax income. Um, undoubtedly, undoubtedly important. They aim to have a lasting impact by strengthening the institutions, aim to controlling corruption, and by training and socializing local officials. However, all these efforts face the real problem of sustainability. They often fail to address... They, fail, they address the weakness of formal institutions but fail to address the strength of informal institutions. So they don't address the underlying organization of corruption and the social and economic structures that fuel it. And corrupt actors can just sit out the international presence and continue and pick up with what they did before once these institutions are dismantled. A second characteristic of efforts in post-conflict countries is the focus on strengthening formal institutions, such as anti-corruption commissions, um, to fight corruption. However, these institutions are very rarely properly resourced or protected against political interference or have strong enough mandates to be effective. In Kosovo, for example, a case I know reasonably well, the Speaker of the Assembly, who is at the moment illegally building a house in a Serb-controlled area in a, natural, in, in, in a, in a nature reserve, um, so clearly corruption uh, happily crosses ethnic boundaries and usual conflicts, just refused um, the head of, to let the head of the anti-corruption agency to present its report in Parliament and let it be debated. Yeah. And there was no consequence of this. Third, the focus of anti-corruption efforts is very much on the actions and institutions of the host state, rather than on the public and private international actors involved. However, as Mike Pugh has argued, we cannot really understand and fight corruption in post-war countries, especially resource-rich countries, without attention to the global economic structures into which they are tapped. There have clearly been some efforts to encourage transparency and accountability of donors and private companies investing in post-war and developing countries, and many were discussed earlier today. In particular, of course, the Publish What You Pay campaign. However, what I think is Quite interesting in, in recent years how the Publish What You Pay campaign, which emphasized, which very much focused on the practices of, in particular, mining and extractive companies, has really been taken over by the EITI campaign, which focused on the practices of governments, governments in developing countries. So the moment resource, in, uh, resource prices increased and, country, and companies from countries such as China, where, of course, these um, programs weren't, uh, didn't, didn't apply, became increasingly active in, in, Africa, in Africa, African countries and other countries, the pressure to actually, on, uh, on research extractive companies, to, dis, um, to disclose their, um, their payments decreased. Instead, the focus was much more on, uh, on developing country governments. Now, this has obviously changed with things such as uh, the U.S. financial reform legislation. It will be interesting to see how that um, will, will affect, the, affect the balance. But... Um, 
Similarly, donors are very, not particularly forthcoming very often when it comes to accounting in detail for their aid. I've been trying to put together a list, the amount of aid spent in Kosovo for a project, and while in the case of some donors I differed, it's quite easy because they're relatively transparent, trying to get money out of the German government, uh, information of the German government or other countries has been rather tricky, if not impossible, um, in particular detailed financial information. Finally, very often the anti-corruption actions bind national peace builders are quite ad hoc, in particular in places where they manage to exercise executive authority. They're not properly thought through, and they're based on perceptions and prejudice rather than data. Often such actions are quite sweeping, none more so than the international program in Bosnia that forced all judges to reapply for their jobs, a program that was implemented but the judiciary is seen as one of the key problems and, and one of the most corrupt institutions in Bosnia. Uh, and the previous program to weed out corrupt judges was deemed ineffective, as it required in the disarmingly honest remark of an official of the International Judicial Commission that was charged with implementing this program. It required a certain amount of proof to be produced in support of finding that a judge or prosecutor is not fit to hold office. Yeah? So instead, the burden of proof was reversed. So we don't need to prove that the judge is corrupt. The judge needs to prove that he isn't corrupt. Yeah? Um, in Kosovo in 2009, the government discussed plans to fire all procurement officers. Procurement was correctly seen as one of the key, uh, key locations of corruption. And so uh, the plan actually also enjoyed, for a while, quite substantial support from major donor countries. But close analysis of this really highlighted that, yes, procurement officers were badly trained. There was corruption among them, and the procurement system was a real problem. But the real reason why most procurement officials signed off deals that were, uh, that were um, influenced by corruption, by bribes and other things, was because some minister would send his bodyguard around and tell them, you really want to sign on the dotted line. Otherwise, you or your family might suffer the consequences as in some cases they did. Yeah. Um, procurement officers were beaten up and threatened, um, threatened with death. So the main problem was really that precarious job security, even though there were civil servants, shouldn't be able to be fired, um, had all these legal protections, which were blithely ignored, even by some of the bylaws that other procurement bodies, like the Review Commission and others, had passed. Now, of course, firing all these officials would have not only had the convenient um, implication for the government that you could replace them with more pliant officials, who by then obviously know that they can be fired very easily again, no matter what the law says. Yeah. Fortunately, at some point, donors moved away from this, and for the moment at least, um, this, has, uh, th this debate has been closed. Now, let me just briefly conclude. What, do these slightly, what does a slightly blurry snapshot of the relationship between corruption and peace-building saying, where did it leave us? Just want to make three very brief um, conclusions and recommendations, uh, which I don't think are particularly revolutionary, but I think they're still worth repeating. The first one is that nothing that I've said should endorse either corruption by, uh, by governments of post-conflict countries or actually corruption by the international community in these countries, which I didn't discuss, but which, as we know from investigations into procurement on Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, we know it's a huge problem. Um, but I think the emphasis should be really on a, on a no-tolerance approach to corruption amongst peace-building actors. Not only could they, for, for a start, lead by example 
vis-à-vis -vis the governments they are trying um, to socialize uh, and where they try to change, uh, change the culture, as Lord Falconer said this morning. Um, and I think this can, takes a, takes a, can take a, a, range of, uh, a range of different ways. It's not just about proper accounting, but also about the political influence that major donor countries uh, influence when it comes to the human decisions. It doesn't mean that money has to flow when under a French SRSG in Kosovo suddenly a French company runs a telecommunication system which is by far the most expensive mobile phone system anywhere in the Balkans. Yeah. Um, one doesn't have to subscribe to conspiracy theories when Kosovo is building a highway to Albania which, costs, which is almost as expensive as annual GDP and is built by Kellogg Brown Root. Yeah. Um, and when it is opened by a transport minister who is now investigated for corruption and has the British and the American ambassador saying to the left and to the right of him, this sends a particular kind of message. Uh, so fighting corruption and for donors and, uh, and agencies to behave in a non-corrupt way is not just about their financial behavior, but also about the signals that they send to the local population. Secondly, I think we need to still pursue anti-corruption efforts in the wider context of peace-building and objectives. This requires difficult political and moral choices. It can involve accepting injustices that result from corruption to achieve basic peace-building goals, such as containing organized violence. And finally, anti-corruption measures need to be context-specific. You know, they need to take account of the particular organization of corruption in a particular post-war country. We can't apply generic approaches to, uh, to corruption in developing countries. And in particular, we shouldn't use the kind of ad hoc measures that have characterized anti-corruption in particular um, in places where the international community has managed to exercise executive authority as in the Balkans or in East Timor. Thank you very much.